This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. You can't talk about development shaping markets today without talking about technology. And I'm joined by Heather Bellini, who leads Goldman Sachs' Technology Research Group. Heather, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Heather, let's start with trends you're seeing in the tech sector, broadly speaking. Earlier this year, you hosted Goldman's annual Technology and Internet Conference in San Francisco, which brings together senior executives from over 100 technology and internet companies. What were the big themes and takeaways at this year's conference? The conference took place earlier in February, and it was right after uh, the big meltdown in the market. So being that we were in San Francisco and we had a variety of private and public companies there, first and foremost, people wanted to know the state of the macro environment, the state of the unicorns was also right up there and what's going on with valuations in private companies and the question about whether we're in a bubble or not in a bubble for private market investing. And then just concerns over how quickly growth software, which were a lot of the companies at the conference, had seen their valuations decline. If you were to think of the conversations that we had or the sessions where people were optimistic and great secular growth drivers. Those centered around social media for the most part and some of the new economy companies that have been able to weather this macro storm or the valuation storm a little bit better or a lot better in some cases than others. So those are riding a big secular trend, <clears throat> a big sort of shift away from the way advertising dollars have been spent in the past to a, sort of a new model. Right, and then we also spent time with virtual reality companies at the conference. So there were about uh, four or five companies demonstrating their technology at the conference. What we tried to do this year is really help showcase upstart areas that people haven't spent a lot of time with. So that was another big area of focus for the event as well. Let's dig into virtual and augmented reality a little bit. In your recent report on these technologies, you say they have the potential to become the next big computing platform. Can you give us a little example of how they're alike, how they're different, and why it's the next big thing? So virtual reality, you are literally putting on a pair of goggles, what's referred to in industry jargon as a head-mounted display or an HMD, and it covers your entire field of view, and you are immersed in whatever environment you're sitting inside of. I've done it. It's a little strange, a little disconcerting. It is. At first, it takes a minute to get used to, and then you could be transported to the pyramids in Egypt or the Great Wall of China, or you could be a surgeon learning how to do a new procedure. So there's a lot of different use cases which we could talk about. But when you think of virtual reality, it's a totally immersive environment. It's either you're tethered, in the case of some of the ones that are just about to ship, you're tethered to your computer, so you have a cord that connects to these. Or in the case of some of the ones that are shipping now, your cell phone is actually the processor and the compute power for the device. You're still wearing a totally immersive HMD or head-mounted display, but your cell phone slides into the device. theory, you're mobile, right? In theory, you're mobile, Although correct. you gotta be careful. Right, <laughs> you have to be careful. And so virtual reality is further along. I think that's what people have heard the most about of late. Augmented reality is where you're wearing a similar head-mounted display. Again, I think about it as a pair of glasses, if you will, or goggles. And it is superimposing an augmented vision for you. So it overlays onto your current field of view. 
So very different. We've had some fits and starts with both sets of technology over the course of the last few years and even over the last decade or so. But you're starting to see virtual reality actually ship to consumers this year. Augmented reality is going to take a little bit more time in terms of shipping to the consumer landscape. So you mentioned there's a little history here. There was a lot of talk in the 90s about virtual reality. Yes. What makes it different this time? Why does it feel a little bit more tangible and likely that we'll actually see commercial applications now? The technology has evolved significantly. Moore's law, increase in processing power, has just made it to the point where when you put these on, you don't get sick. It is a little weird the first time you get involved in one of these experiences, but you quickly forget. But if you go back four or five years ago, certainly if you go back a decade ago, people were getting nauseous. And so what you've had is just a big improvement in the technology cycle where this technology and these types of applications are able to be created. Now, they're not perfect yet, but we've come a long way. And what you need is a good user experience in order to get people to want to build more applications for these platforms. And we're at, we think, the very beginning of that being able to occur in a manner that people will be accepting of. One of the early adopters, obviously, has been the gaming industry. And right. a lot of people, when they think of virtual reality, they think gaming. They really think of hardcore video gamers, right? right? But in your research, you say that'll be a big chunk of the market, maybe 11, 12 billion of a $35 right. billion dollar market eventually, a software market over the next decade. Walk us through some of the other applications that could make up as much as two thirds of the market. And that would be our base case scenario, what you described. I certainly think there's an opportunity for the market to be much bigger than what we laid out in our base case. But when you think of whether it's virtual reality or augmented reality, this is going to touch almost every industry that we know of today. And think about it this way. If you go back to the early days of everyone starting to use the internet, and there are some companies that were involved in selling goods online, people thought the internet was going to kill the book industry, physical brick and mortar book companies. And they thought that was it. And then the internet, one by one, started to impact every different sector that we can think of. If it fulfills its promise, and if the technology curve can keep progressing like it has been, this technology will impact education. This will impact healthcare. This is already being used in manufacturing. It will get more so. It'll change the way we shop for items that we put in our home, whether it's furniture, how we might try on clothes at a store. We might be able to see yeah, what we look like. Real estate's an obvious application. Real right? estate's gonna be there. I really do think that this has very broad opportunities. Again, some are gonna progress faster than others. The biggest challenge for these industries will be the technology needs to continue to evolve, and we can talk about some of the challenges that have to be overcome in time for us to kind of get to that nirvana point. But also what has to happen is there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem. We need to get this technology in the hands of people, have them have a good experience with it, and then let the developer community and some of these specialized business applications that are going to be needed to touch some of these industries I mentioned, to have those companies start to be formed to start impacting whatever market they're gonna serve. When we start to hit critical mass, where are the places, the practical places that you could see this getting really early adoption? So I think the healthcare area is an area that you will see a lot of traction in for this type of technology. We've spent time talking to medical schools and how they're leveraging these types of augmented reality technology to change how they train surgeons, 
how they might do a procedure differently, giving them a first-hand view of what the lead surgeon might be seeing instead of having to look over their shoulder or look at it from a viewing station from behind. It's a natural extension of some of what they do today. They're using a, a natural, uh, yes, a, a natural extension, but they can, the they can put themselves in the place of the actual surgeon. And if you talk to doctors, doctors learn by doing. So, you know, they'll say someone does the procedure, someone's watching the procedure, and then ultimately that person's going to have to do the procedure on their own. So the more kind of reps that they could get in actually being in that lead surgeon's shoes, hopefully the better care the patient's having. And I have very high conviction that you will see these types of augmented reality glasses be in ambulances. I think you'll see EMTs using this technology to help give better care when they're transporting patients back to a hospital, where the EMT could be looking at the patient, might have a question for in, whoever the doctor is. Back in real time. Right, yep. back in real time. And, you know, there's a lot of things that people are going to have to overcome to get comfortable with that. There's privacy concerns. Your medical data is being shared over a network, but it's but at a the question same time, of life and death. So I think yeah. there's there's a lot of those use cases. We're delivering better health care, better patient monitoring, so that when a nurse walks in a room, if she knows everyone's vitals, she knows all your vitals because they're showing up on her glasses as opposed to her having to go check something. So I do think we're going to see healthcare get changed. Real estate, I think, is another good example. You're starting to see some companies do this today, where whether it's commercial or residential real estate, for any of us who have either rented or bought a house or an apartment before, you would go look at 50 different places and you might find five that you really like. It's not a very efficient process, it's not at least very not efficient. here in New York City. Right. <laughs> and it could become more efficient if you could do virtual walkthroughs of those on your own time. And then you could go to the agent, whether it's commercial or residential, here are the ones I really want to go see. So everyone's time is utilized more effectively. I think that's another example. Even the way we buy, I touched on this a little bit, but being able to see what furniture could look like in your house or what a TV would look like if you hung it on a different wall without having to do that. So retailers are starting to embrace this technology so that they can more marry the physical store, the physical world with the virtual world. So I think ultimately, the applications can be limitless. And one of the other areas is just, if you think about it from a consumer standpoint, think about the car buying experience. And you go to these dealerships where they might have two, 300 cars on the lot, you every different get color. get every single one of them, right? Right. You could sit in one of them or sit in a model and see the different interior colors, see the exterior colors. You could actually open the door in these cars, get in and out, see if, if you went to the high-end package versus the low-end package, it would be more efficient for the dealer, and it yeah, can ultimately be more efficient for the consumer. Cut a lot of their consumer. inventory. And right. And education is an area where it almost speaks for itself how this could transform and kind of level the playing field so every child could get that trip to the Great Wall of China to see what that experience is like or see the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. So I think there's a lot of different applications ultimately where I think we'll look back 10 years from now and say, wow, this really helped transform society. Ted Chilowitz of 20th Century Fox said, we're essentially at the brick-sized cell phone days of virtual reality. Do you agree? Are we still at Gordon Gecko walking along the beach with the monster cell phone? I still think to some extent that is the case, right? I think it's very early days. We don't have 
Herculean shipment forecasts for this year or next year. And, you know, cell phones penetration started really slowly. And then over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, it's hard to meet someone that doesn't have, forget about it, a mobile phone, a smartphone. Smartphone, And yeah. so... And they're all walking down the streets looking at them all the time, which is sort right. of a, exactly. not a whole lot different maybe I mean, than look, virtual reality. Uh, it, it, so I do <laughs> think... They're immersed in their phones. Right. right. So I do think that we are in a pretty similar time but it shows that we have a potentially really fantastic ramp ahead of us in terms of the changes that'll bring to society and productivity, et cetera. How do you compare the adoption rate of virtual reality to augmented reality now? And why is the latter taking a little more time? Virtual reality is just further along in terms of the companies that have been focusing on it. Augmented reality will come. There are certainly large companies working on that as well. There's been some fits and starts over the last couple of years with people trying different glasses type technology, mm -hmm. bringing that back into the lab, if you will, and reincarnating it and some new large players trying to get into it. A lot of it has to do with where we are from a technological standpoint. So from an augmented reality standpoint, there's a lot of calibration technology that needs to go on. So keep in mind, again, in virtual reality, you're immersed into this universe. You're wearing these head-mounted displays. You can't see out the sides, so you see what's in front of you, what's around you, but you don't have the outside noise, if you will. With the augmented reality environment, you have to calibrate what you're trying to transpose onto the screen that you're looking at, as well as your physical surroundings. So there's more technological hurdles that need to be overcome for, for I think, that to really start taking off. But there are, again, in some of the industries we're talking to, and healthcare is one of them. There are some big use cases and big hopes for how this technology will change how people do patient care or see a doctor going forward. Heather, let's shift gears and talk about cloud technologies and other focus for you and your team. First, walk us through the difference between the public and the private cloud, which you've been writing about. So a public cloud would be when a company takes their applications that they're running to run their business and moves them outside of their own data centers to a third to a party. Third party. Yep. A private cloud, it's kind of a twist on what people are already doing. So they're taking their existing data centers, which are areas where you have a bunch of computers or servers running different applications, and what they're doing is they're taking them out of a 10 or 20 year old architecture and moving them to this new environment. So it's very similar. Building their own cloud. They're building their own cloud internally. And that could be for reasons related to government regulations where they're concerned about having this data leave their four walls or data sovereignty or what have you. And some people still think it might be in their best interest to do these things themselves. Over time, that might change. I mean, the fastest growing part of the market is the public cloud, where, again, you're basically taking your technology and moving it to someone else's computers and they're managing that, that environment for you. We do that here Goldman Sachs. Right, exactly. So... You recently stated in a report that up to $300 billion in traditional enterprise IT spend is at risk as businesses pursue hybrid, public, and private cloud strategies. What's driving that transition to the cloud? So cloud technology, public and private cloud, that's all about enterprise data centers, if you will. And there's a trend for people to shift workloads, that's applications that people use, whether it's your general ledger application or your sales application or a trading system to take what you used to have to store servers in your own data center for and move them to a third-party provider. So there's applications where 
people would do test and development before an application ever goes live. Think of any application you use, people can test it and run it and make tweaks and then what's called put it into production. That type of test and dev before something goes live, a lot of that has already been shifted to a public cloud environment where you rent the technology that you need for a period of time and when you're done testing it, you could shut that down and you're not going to get billed for it. What's been driving so that- less upfront investment to right. get started so, with a new product. And right? so that's what's been happening is people want to react faster. Consumers demand things. And as consumers have experiences outside of work, people expect to have those same experiences within the office. And people don't want to wait two weeks to have a server provisioned if you're an engineer when you could go to one of these public clouds and provision one in five minutes and start working on your application. So people are looking for agility they're looking for cost savings, so just better efficiency in general, and all of that leads to a better outcome for the business. So there's been reasons that people are shifting their- Speed, cost, it's, it's Yeah, I think of really agility and efficiency as being the two main drivers. And then you still have companies, very large companies, that have these big physical brick and mortar buildings that house a lot of computers and you know servers and storage, and people, are slowly trying to shrink those footprints. They can have less CapEx, so it gets to the efficiency comment before, and they can turn CapEx into OpEx, which people usually feel more comfortable with knowing what they're spending. But there's a big portion of your internally run applications at Fortune 500 companies that people still only feel comfortable running in their own premises, whether there's security reasons, whether there's reasons related to government restrictions or what have you. So. Those workloads might still be running internally, but people are changing the way they're doing those as well. So and, they're trying to get the same into, agility right, yep. from the public cloud into the private cloud. So when we talk about that 300 billion that's at risk, it's really a question of, do the dollar shift from the current vendors? Everyone's trying to be a cloud company and trying to be a tech company in a way. And so what's happening is people are trying to say, instead of moving all my workloads to the public cloud for now, can I take those workloads and get the same agility and create my data center in a similar way to get the same benefits as moving them outside? And that's going to go on for a while. Certainly when we talk to chief information officers, you know, we happen to think we'll live in a hybrid world for a long time, but the shift is going very aggressively to the public cloud. And there's going to be a tension there between what should stay in someone's own data centers and what should shift to these third-party cloud providers. But that means there's a lot of noise underneath the waves. One of the more intriguing developments is this idea, and, and Goldman had a report on this recently, said the declining cost of saving a DNA sequence, for instance, right by storing it in the cloud could help accelerate the ability to find cures for cancer and the like. Explain that. I agree with that 100%. You know, think about the phone you carry in your pocket today has more processing power than some of the systems people use to run their businesses 10, 20 years ago. I mean, that's remarkable. I mean, you're carrying a supercomputer in a sense in your pocket, at least when you compare it to what people were running their businesses on 20 years ago. And we're still not tapping the full potential of that We're today. still not tapping the full potential. And what's great about technology is that it continues to evolve. And so the supercomputer will get even more super every couple of years that pass. And that's what's great, and it allows us to do more and more things. In that sequencing example that you gave, it would be very expensive historically for someone to have that compute power sitting around 
to do those types of things now, that compute power can be built by a third-party public cloud provider. And instead of one company shouldering the bill for that, you can have multiple companies, hundreds of companies leveraging that same platform. And with computing power and things like big data technology, you're just able to process and find things, kind of the needle in the haystack, that from a cost benefit standpoint wasn't possible before. And again, it just goes to the way these applications are being architected to take advantage of these technological changes that we've seen. One more question. Now that virtual reality, augmented reality and the cloud are becoming realities, what emerging technology should we be focused on next? So I think the market for VR and AR will evolve over the next decade, much to the brick cell phone example. So I think there's a lot there to watch and pay attention to in terms of the areas it could disrupt and enable over the course of the next 10 years. So I definitely think that's going to be an area we want to continue to watch. I think the other areas, big data has been an area that has gotten a lot of attention over the last few years. I think that will continue as well. There's, there's actually two markets that are getting a lot of interest these days related to artificial intelligence, so AI, and robotics. So there's been a lot of debate over what happens to labor over time. Can it be replaced in some cases with robotics? Even in finance. Right? And AI is one of those things. Will we have artificial intelligence be able to answer clients' questions going forward versus having that human intervention? So there's a lot of innovation, a lot of money being spent to figure out where these two technologies in particular can go over the course of the next five to 10 years. But I think we're going to hear in particular on artificial intelligence a lot more over the course of the next 12 months. Heather, thanks for joining us. I feel like we only scratched the surface, but thank you for being here today. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on March 1st, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.